Hello cult hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate and interested in cults. And I'm Stephen Mather, organisational psychologist, also interested in cults, and I was in one. So today we're very lucky to be talking to the author of the wonderful book Uncultured, Daniela Messinek-Young. Welcome to the podcast, Daniela. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. We're really looking forward to, to talking to you. So um, just finish your your audio book. It's just so brilliant. And I recommend all our listeners get the book. It's really, really interesting. You've got such a, an interesting perspective on the question of cults. So maybe we could start there. Um, wh- what is your perspective? What, what are you bringing to this, this field of cults? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, you know, I guess... I wrote this book because I started thinking about the word culture and I've lived in so many different countries and so many different kinds of culture and grew up in a cult and served in the military and everything is so different. And I started thinking about, you know, culture and cult and how these two things play together. Um, And then I like to say I was watching a cult leader run America and I figured (laughs) I had something to say about it. Um, you know, and during COVID, while I was writing the Uncultured, which is a memoir of my life, it's the story of my life growing up in the children of God and then leaving and joining the U.S. Army and becoming one of the first women to do ground combat. So kind of breaking into all these different things. But I was also getting my master's in organizational psychology, organizational dynamics, group behavior. It goes by a lot of different names. Uh, But one of the things I noticed was that we seem to have these two separate categories. We have groups, and I'll call them the good groups, right? Organizations, churches, companies, and we study those in organizational psychology. And then we have cults, which are a problem, and they're a societal problem, and we study those in sociology, and they're completely separate. And when I first started saying, you know, I know a lot about organizations because I grew up in a cult, that Mm. sounded crazy to people. But I really think there is something to looking at cults as what they are, which is very successful organizations, toxic for sure, isolated for sure, all kinds of awful things, but still successful organizations. You know, the Children of God, in addition to being a sex cult, and child trafficking and money laundering and all the things was, you know, had over a hundred thousand, we could call employees who devoted their lives to, you know, well, creating childhood entertainment videos and getting those out all around the world. So if you looked at the statistics of this company, right, like cults work. And I am so interested in why they work, why people are drawn to them, and then where we see that phenomena in our everyday groups, everyday cults, um, you know, and and stuff like that around us. So that, that's that's so interesting. Obviously, um, it, it, it's something that we've talked about, isn't it, Celine, on the podcast around mm-hmm. organizations and the fact that cults are organizations. It's something that it's a drum that. Um, I've certainly been beating for quite some time. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think uh, it's an area we were just just discussing it before we started recording, and it is an area that I think is missed a little bit. It's an area that needs more research, that needs more work to understand how these groups work, um, and why not apply the tools and methods of organizational psychology? Because after all, they do the same sorts of things, don't they? They they recruit, they they punish people, they they lead people, they give people purpose um these are all the things that organizations of all sorts do there must be some qualitative difference and understanding that i think is really really important so i think you're onto a a really rich vein there that um i'm I'm very excited about yes you know and it's so interesting i feel like even in organizational psychology it's still people are so want to only study the good topics, the positive mm. topics, the topics that you can then go sell to a CEO as a consultant. And in most of the classes I took, we would mention the toxicities. We would talk about negative leader traits and then we would never come back to them and we would never like focus on that part. So for me, you know, as a former U.S. military intelligence officer, that's very interesting because my job in the army was literally to focus on the bad guy, to focus on the toxic, right? To focus on as operations marches forward, what are the risks here? And and that's what I think is really missing in the conversations about cults. And we act like like normal groups don't ever become cults, right? So like, you're a cult, you're a cult, this is a normal group, which is, of course, why the first sentence of uncultured is the first rule of cults is you're never in a cult. And many, many businesses became cults, cults became businesses, right? Oneida silverware literally started off as a religious cult. And the documentary about the rise and fall of WeWork, I think, is Absolutely. one of the best depictions Absolutely. of how a cult is built, how something good turns into something toxic, and the people involved don't see it. And they're nice people. They're everyday people. Nobody meant anything inherently malicious, except maybe the leaders at the top. But all of these people are taken along with it. And yeah. for sure, this is what I've devoted my life to studying. Yeah, it doesn't just have to be an MLM because I think people are talking more about MLMs and being a bit culty, but it doesn't just have to be necessarily. Well, and and that's another good example uh, is an MLM, right? And I one of the things that uh, Dr. Yanya Lalich, who's a supreme you know cult scholar, says about mm. cults is that ultimately they're always about labor and they're always about getting you labor, getting your labor for free. And I think if we look at it through that perspective, right, it becomes so obvious and it gives you like one of the checkpoints that you can have for an individual. Um, Because I personally think that anything can become a cult, right? Any, like we saw the idea of don't sex traffic children, which we all agree with, lead people into QAnon through Pizzagate here in the US. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that anything can become a cult if you're super isolated in it. But if you turn that around and you ask yourself, how much of my time is this taking? Like literally how much free spare time do I have outside of this group? And then, you know, how much of my labor is it taking versus what I'm getting mm-hmm. back? Right. Because that is ultimately where a bunch of your toxic sort of leadership and control is going to come to surface. 
Do you think um, cult groups are going to be getting a bit um, afraid hearing all the quiet quitting terms recently? <laughs> um, well, you know, with, with cult trends as it goes, it's interesting because now mm -hmm. is definitely the time of cults as the late 60s and early 70s were in the US. And we find that that's because cults pop up in times of social confusion, right? When we have a lot of options, it's really nice to have somebody to tell us exactly what to do. Um, I, I don't think quiet quitting is going to hurt cults because one of the way cults operate is through isolating their people. And I actually think that COVID pushing people into their houses, the internet making isolation more possible, and also the fact that like, Americans don't all watch their news from the same source, or not just Americans, right? Anyone in the world. Um, we have become sort of so dispersed that I think the polarization and the cultiness is actually rising quite a bit. Daniela, uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, your background then? So um, you've you've written this fantastic book. So um, I, again, you know, people need to read the book to find the the, the full story. But um, could you give us a little bit of insight into what it was like growing up in the Children of God? What's what's that like, and what sort of lessons did you learn from that as a child? I mean, not good lessons necessarily, but what things kind of shaped your thinking and behaviour? through being raised in that environment? Yes. Yeah, so the Children of God started in the late 60s, right? It was one of these evangelical Christian cults that started recruiting hippies in the hippie days in the U.S. And my grandfather was one of these very early recruits who became a lead, like one of the lead financial guys for the prophet. And so my family was kind of linked here from the very beginning. My great-grandmother actually donated her house to the prophet. And so my mother was born and raised in the cult when she was a young girl. And the prophet, because they always do this slowly, of course, started out love, faith, and Jesus. And it slowly, over about a decade, became total control. He started using his followers as religious prostitutes. He started a doctrine of sort of pedophilia for God or raising sexually liberated children. And our whole entire lives were about preparing for the apocalypse. So the idea was Jesus is coming back literally any day, which means we don't have jobs. We don't go to school. We don't, you know, fellowship with unbelievers. We are solely here to save the world for Jesus. We are God's end time army. Um, so when my grandmother kind of saw the, the pedophilia in the teachings, she was one of those few and it is surprisingly few that decided to leave. And really? what happened there, well, we were told two different stories. Um, I was told she left her eldest daughter with God. And later when I met that family, I was told that my mom was disappeared the next day, which is the story that I tend to believe. So my mom then was raised sort of in the leadership circle, but without a mom which brings me to one of the things that I learned very, very young and was a belief of the children of God was that your individual family is not important. 
the family we called ourselves was the only thing that mattered. All parents could punish all children. Nobody could really say anything. So in this way, parents sort of absolutely gave over control of their children to the group. And, you know, my mom was the second generation. She was only 14 when she got pregnant with me. She was beautiful and cool. And I loved her so much. And I spent most of my childhood very afraid that because of my own sins or because of the way I acted out, my my parents would be taken, my mom would be taken. Um, so, you know, the the main way I describe our childhood is just like we grew up in sort of religious prison camps. By the time I came around in the late 80s and 90s, the children of God had really morphed from sex cult into childhood entertainment video production and dissemination all around the world. So I was raised as a child actress primarily. And outside of that, we we were the workforce. So we, you know, every morning we studied the words of our prophet for hours and then we cleaned or we cooked or we took care of kids or we begged for money on the streets or we sold these videos. You know, I had the honor of both acting and dancing and performing in these videos and also selling them on With the street. distribution as well. Mm. Yes. Um, and that, that was kind of the life. We saw our parents an hour a day um, until I was about 10 years old and, and things changed a little bit, but it was very much this like institutionalized, almost as though we lived in, you know, an, an orphanage or some kind of institution mm. for children, but just with a lot of Jesus. And they very much believed in spare the rod, spoil the child, so physically beating children. And of course, there was all of these beliefs around pedophilia and sexual abuse. But Really, I think what I always describe as sort of the the worst part, but the thing that stuck with me was, you know, you lived your life in straight lines and there was no spontaneous moments of joy allowed. Like as very, very young children, we had to be perfect all of the time. And we were taught that the outside world was evil and everyone was out to get us. Um, you know, I had a chapter of Uncultured published in Rolling Stone magazine. And the chapter that they chose was the one where all the kids are woken up in the middle of the night to be prepared, sort of these battle drills for when the raids, when the police raided, when the persecution came, when the Antichrist came. And that was a big part of our life. And you know, I personally was the extremely rebellious kid. I feel like I was, you know, born an atheist to Christian fundamentalists. <laughs> and I thought for a long, long time that I absorbed nothing or almost nothing from the cult. And recently, you know, through the process of writing the book, really, I learned that I absorbed those two ideas very heavily, that the outside world was bad and people were mm. out to get me and that I had to be perfect in order, you know, at first it was just to sort of pass as a normal American. And later it was, you know, hoping that I would achieve something so grand that I would eventually outdate one day outrun my trauma. And Uncultured really kind of is the story of that, right? Like how we grew up in those beliefs. And then my journey to discover that I could take off all the armor and I could relate to people and I'm still working on the not having to be perfect all the time. So I'll get back <laughs> to you. Um, I, 
it, it's really hard because you know reading your book um I, I don't think i suffered anywhere near the same sort of horrific experience that you did but i i do recognize some of the things you know this feeling of wanting to excel when you leave um i i really recognize that you know there's a feeling that i just wanted to be able to say see <laughs> you know <laughs> see um and that actually was quite damaging for me i think um it's taken me quite a long time to to stop thinking that way but yeah i i and i i sort of feel that i do recognize that um very much in in what you said there um the the loaded language i thought was interesting yeah uh, i i was struck by the systemites of course um so that was really interesting the because we used to call people that weren't witnesses worldly people uh, but you had a, a wonderful term systemites um, so these are people that lived in the system and that that was how they kind of uh, made you afraid of it you know it's a dangerous place don't ever go there and and that's another tactic i mean all the classic cult tactics are there aren't they you know you you uh you talk about them quite a lot really i guess i was just going to come off the back of what you're saying there about the fact that you you know had had taken in um without realizing the the fear of the people on the outside and what that would be like but you obviously did want to go and be outside um so i guess like it's a very big question so answer it as um broadly or specifically as you like but how how was that kind of process mentally going from I'm afraid, but I want to? Yeah. You know, um, one of the things with, you know, having the term systemites, right. Which is a term for outsiders, which is a lot of times called us versus them thinking, mm -hmm. but it's also dehumanization, right? Like we, the 10,000 members of the children of God, we were the family, we were God's army, we were right. And everyone else, like nothing was even considered, right? So there's absolutely no consideration for another way of being. It's just we're right and they're wrong. And, you know, when I was six years old, after some fairly horrific experiences, I remember having this conversation with myself and saying, you know, if if this is correct, if the family is really God's chosen people, like, I don't want God. I'm, you know, hell's going to suck, but I'm out of here. And I so much relate to what you were saying about, you know, just wanting to prove um, everybody wrong. But Celine, to answer your question, the way I describe it in Uncultured is I was as afraid that I would have to go as I was that I would have to stay, right? Like when we were children, we were taught to be very, very afraid of police. We were actively programmed on how to lie to outsiders. And, you know, it was very much like having a secret clearance in the military. Like there's the stuff you can talk about with other people and there's the stuff that is only for us and you absolutely cannot talk about it. Um, you know, and it, it, definitely all came together when I finally did, you know, I got myself excommunicated. I, I got away when I was 15 and all I wanted to go was to go to high school because all I wanted was to go to college. But all I'd heard my whole life was literal horror stories about high school. They would, they would have all of the, 
the adult members that I would say had the worst experiences before they joined the children of God. And they would have them write those out in traumatic details, called them traumatic testimonies. And we would read these just horror stories about the outside world from the age of two or three. And so I very much, you know, the, the chapter where I'm dropped into high school, you know, it's called Dazed and Confused, and I'm just walking up to this building, and it wasn't just any high school, it was 4,000 students in a giant oh, high school funny. in the third biggest city in America, right? So <laughs> it was going from never being in school a day to complete and utter overwhelm. And I mean, I remember it looked like a prison, it felt like a prison, and I, you know, it made me question so hard, what did I do with my life? And I think that's saying a lot when you come from a, a situation that is as bad as what I went through. So yeah, it's, you know, it's psychologists have estimated that leaving our religious groups is as close to death as we can imagine. And I 100% agree with that. There's, there's some, um, you know, obviously your book, um, there's parts of it that are kind of tough to read, very tough to read. Um, but there's other lovely bits in your book that bring a, a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling, I think, where where people do show some kindness and um, just just treat you normally, you know, like the, the guard at the school uh, gates, you know, and then the, the, the uh, advisor, the counsellor that you have in the school. And these are people who just you you're just amazed um at the fact that they they're not you know you're not in trouble and um they, they just want to help you know it's just wonderful it's you know i almost describe it these days for cult survivors and really is for those of us that are are born into the cults which we've children of god have decided to call ourselves cult babies okay. um <laughs> and i find that for a lot of cult babies we we almost live in the closet when we come out, right? And it goes back to that fear of the outside world and that nobody's going to love you and nobody's going to take care of you, um, which, by the way, is similar things they tell you when you leave the United States Army. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you you really absorb that and it becomes this fear that like, and, and most of us, when we left the cult, we went back either to the US, the UK, Australia, these most of these countries that our parents had come from. And mm. you you want so hard to pass. And I think, you know, part of the perfectionism was really believing like I look like a normal white American girl. I sound like a normal white American girl. So if I just work hard enough and don't let anyone too close. I can pass as this normal American girl. Um, and really for me, I think finally letting go of that and understanding that, you know, I am a cult baby. I am, I literally do not have a hometown. You know, I cannot, no matter how hard I work, I am never going to be able to pass as the average millennial. And for me, it was this journey of, you know, really understanding that people good people in the world who love me, who are connected, who hear my story, like they are not going to throw me away mm -hmm. because of this background that I have. 
I had to work on putting shame, which did not belong to me, in its own place. And, you know, I think this is another reason I've devoted my life to studying cults because, mm. well, to everyone from the outside, it's so unexplainable. You know, I know that there were good people in the cults, just like mm. there are good and bad people in the outside world. And it's so interesting to me, like how firmly people can get established in those mental processes. Sorry, that answer was way too long and not about what no, you <laughs> Really interesting. It was really interesting. And it also opens up um, something that I've thought about before is that with um, dad, you started, you'd not use the word cult for mm. the majority of the time since you've been out um, or even a high control group. It was very much like you were saying, trying to kind of shut that door and be like, and now that's done and I'm going to try and, you know, we won't talk about that and just just get on and be be quote unquote normal now. Um, and But we started doing stuff like the podcast. We started um, doing other like film stuff and it was obvious that it shaped sort of some of the reasons you wanted to explore certain topics and, um, you know, started opening up that, can <laughs> and mm. it's it's you know led to a lot of good things being able to actually yeah reflect on that and I guess you know from my point of view watching it you've kind of I guess the perfection levels have gone a bit down but you've um like the need the need for the perfection has gone maybe a bit down but and you've been able to talk about it and like mm. yeah reflect on that past so it's definitely something I've seen as a observer and our as we've gone on this podcast journey. <laughs> that's, in, that's interesting. I mean, um, Daniela, you, I mean, I, I feel, a, I don't mean this in a sort of self-deprecating way, but you kind of put me to shame. I mean, um, I, I was amazed in your book how you're so young when you, you make your decision, you're going to leave, uh, then you go to high school, then you go to university, and then you're in the army. Um, and it's taken me um, till I was in my early fifties to get my act together, you know. Um, but and I think that's that's a real testimony to your determination and um, and sheer. Um, well, yeah, that is the word determination to make that happen. I think it's it's fantastic, and the book is in, inspirational. I think um, certainly in in that way and in lots of other ways, really. Thank you, but you know, I would say that. I, you know, okay, certainly I worked very hard, but I do see now where I, for so many years, thought like I escaped the trauma, right? Like somehow I was the magical person that went through so, 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 so much. And I turned out totally fine. And so, you know, I always like to tell people that uncultured is not quite the the sort of romantic overcoming story that I thought it was going to be, right? I thought in my life, like when I became a captain in the U.S. Army, I will now have checked the box, trauma completed, you know, nobody ever had to know where I came from and it's all fine now. And of course, you know, even what you were saying, Celine, about how where he didn't, your dad didn't like to talk about it before, you know, and I think it's not until you start stop running away from it, start contextualizing it, right? Because we like for things to be either good or bad. And it's so hard for us that we're born in to understand how something so, so awful can still have produced 
lifelong friends that we have, right? Like connections to other countries, just all, there are good things too, right? And I think that owning my story, it, you know, it's funny because trying so hard to be perfect did not make people think necessarily that high of me, but owning my story and telling the whole story, I think it's so explainable, right? And it, it, people read the story and they go, oh, now I understand you. And that is, you know, the exact opposite of what we think people are going to do, which is reject Mm -hmm. us, which is not understand us at all. So um, no, I'm so glad to hear that you related to the story. Hello, listeners. My name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long format interview based show that focuses on cults, high demand groups, captive organizations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Let, let's let's move on to your army days, um, Daniela, because it's so. Again, this is one of the perspectives that you have that so few of us, I think, have. You've you go from um, this group. Obviously, you, you you get some schooling, you go to university. So that's another organization or another couple of different organizations there. Um, but if we skip forward to your going into the the military. Um, Obviously, in the book, it's really clear that you see lots of parallels between these experiences. And um, some of it, I guess, is and obviously as a woman as well, you're you're trying to um, battle against all sorts of cultural difficulties and misogyny and and so on. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that experience, I suppose? Let's just tell us what that was like going into the army as a woman, as a cult survivor, um, and trying to fit into that world. Yes. So, you know, I'll tell the listener, right, the prologue of Uncultured is, I think, pretty great. Um, And it's me, you know, standing, I'm 22 years old, I'm at basic training, I'm holding this 50 pound or you know probably 25 kilo duffel bag over my head and you're supposed to do this for like two to three hours and you get yelled at and you drop the bag and it is impossible but it's also irrational right which like that is an important thing because that is what high control groups do to get you. And I, I realized this at the time, I didn't know the word high control group yet. But I was like, here we go. This is the thing where they're testing our commitment. And once we do this one irrational thing, we're going to question much less. And so I had my realization, oh, my God, I just joined another cult. (laughs) But, you know, in part, I would say it was because of that six years where I left everything I knew, I went to high school, which was just 
two years of absolute loneliness for me and, you know, exploitation when I did try to reach out and connect with people. College was a little bit better, but I still spent six years pretty alone to the point that I get into this toxic marriage, end up joining the army. But I think for me, it was, you know, the military is good for a lot of things. And one of those is a shortcut to being in a group. You know, you give up three years of your life and you get training and you get a uniform and you get around other people that have also volunteered just like you and are going to be on the same missions as you. And even if you're weird or even if you're different, you fit. And I think that appealed to me so much while at the same time, I'm coming in as a cult survivor. So I am conscious from day one of, oh, they're programming us. Um, But the interesting thing I would say is that when I thought, oh, this is another cult, that wasn't necessarily a scary, bad thing for me. That was a, oh, I know how to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I was expecting the military cult parallels because the children of God was formed by a veteran, was militaristic. We called ourselves God's army. We Mm. did, you know, battle drills and practices and all of these things, which of course, you know, the cover of uncultured is me as a two-year-old wearing armor in Jesus's army. So those parallels I was ready for. I knew I was going to be good at it. I knew that as an intelligence officer, my job is to try to be as non-American as possible and get in the heads of the people trying to kill us and understand them. And I was like, that's my bread and butter, right? Going into a new world and understanding people, I can do that. I don't understand Americans half the time. So I was mostly just really excited about it. And then it wasn't until I get to my first deployment, well, to be fair, you know, the, the sexism starts from day one. They, the drill sergeants literally said to us in basic training, a woman in the army is either a bitch, a slut, or a dyke. And here, what you're supposed to take from this is you better be a bitch. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until my first got to Afghanistan that I really got triggered and really started to notice the parallels of here I am once again, I've fought so hard to gain control over my life. And here I am on another compound that I can't leave behind high walls being told. And for real in this case, most of the people outside are quite dangerous, but most of the people inside are very dangerous to me too. And here I am as, as 5% of the population as a woman, and we are just at the threat of sexual violence every single day, which ends up happening to me. And it, it just became one of those things that, of course, you know, I see these parallels because I came to the military as a cult survivor. But I say at the end of the day, I think we all wish there were fewer parallels between a sex cult that trafficked children and the United States Army. And Mm. that was, yeah, that was the big wake up moment for me. Yeah, it's it's quite upsetting um, that an organization that, you know, you're volunteering for, you're you're willing to lay down your life um, and, you know, you're just made to feel um well unwelcome and also the 
I suppose the threat of rape, you talk about that quite a lot in your book. It's, um, it's ever present, you know, you're, you're told to make sure you don't get raped, which, you know, is, is infuriating. I mean, it's, as you put in your book, um, why are the men not being told not to rape women, you know, rather than mm-hmm. make sure it's on you to, um, to, to take every precaution. Um, do, do you see any sign that that's improving or, or is that, do you, I, I mean, I guess you're, you're out, out of it now in that respect, but what's your sense of that? Um, it's so complicated. You know, I, I do. I think this is one of the more powerful moments in Uncultured to me is when I'm going out on these patrols as the only woman with 25 men and 15 Afghan soldiers attached. So I'm one of 40 and I am pulled aside by a superior and told to watch my back and nobody stops and questions why we are all afraid that 25 American soldiers are simultaneously going to sort of lose their minds and conduct a sexual assault, right? Like that is when you, when you go back is kind of bonkers. And, you know, there, there have been things that have changed. So the removal of the combat ban, right? Banning women from combat maybe ironically, made us far less safe because we have a whole population of, you know, members of the military are individuals trained to conduct violence on behalf of state, right? If we boil it down. So we've got a bunch of violent people here. And then we are telling them that 10 to 15% of them are not as good as them. Literally telling them when you ban a certain category of humans from something that other Mm. humans are allowed to do, you are saying that they are not equal. So I do think that, right, you know, I was part of proving that women could do it and the combat ban came down and that is going to make women safer. Um, They've recently passed a law called Safe to Report And it's really sad that this needs to exist, but this would have prevented or at least helped me get justice in my sexual assault, which is that if anyone reports a sexual assault, the military cannot punish them for a lesser crime. So this used to be weaponized against young women, for example, that would be drinking in the barracks when they were under the age of 21 And then they would get assaulted and they would be told that if they reported it, they would also be prosecuted for drinking. So that no longer exists. That being said, right, having regulations or having a route to justice, as we know from cults, does not necessarily mean that that is happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so from the outside looking in there are a few things that i would expect to see if they really wanted to change the culture and one of those it sounds really funny but it's telling the men not to rape right and that's because in the u.s army every single commander has every single soldier in front of their face every friday and they give them what's called a safety brief which is all the things i don't want you to do over the weekend because this is a high control group and we own you. So it's don't drink and drive. It's, you know, they literally say don't fry bacon naked a lot. This is a fun, fun cultural thing to say. And the second you start saying don't rape people, that projects 
your intentions, right? That you are not going to put up with this. Mm. And that in and of itself, I, I think would make a difference. I think that, you know, the military to this day continues to fight every time Congress tries to oppose, you know, put a new regulation, take, they fought for decades, uh, congressional attempts to take the prosecution of sexual crimes out of the chain of command and those kind of things, right? So it's, you know, and just two or three weeks ago, they censured a general, the military formally censured a general who stood up to a newscaster who was saying that women made the military weaker and said, women have every right to serve. And the military said that his comments saying that women had the right to serve were bad for recruiting. And so yeah. they censured him. Right. So, you know, on the one hand, I think it works out because Gen Z is just not joining the military and they are eventually going to be forced to have to change some of these things. But unfortunately, you know, for the most part, it's almost the same as what we see under a lot of organizations that intend to change or pay lip service to yes. changing. And then they don't, right? It's, you know, you can say all day long that these are your values, but it's the reporting that you require. It's the things that the little things that you do to show that you're actually trying to change the culture. And in the U.S. Army specifically, they used to have a very, very lax culture about drinking and driving. They would make jokes that, you can't become a general or sergeant major without at least two DUIs. And when they decided to change that culture in less than a decade, that culture changed. And Definitely. nobody yeah. in military towns will have more than like one or two drinks and get behind a mm -hmm. wheel because they know for a fact it is considered inexcusable and it will end their career. And again, they say all day long that they want to address the rape culture, but I have never seen the men at the top actually, actually make that a focus. Mm. So I remain a skeptic. It's it's something that we talk about a lot in the sense of like, for instance, with JWs, like the two witness rule and saying, you know, they will do things to protect children and women um, from these um, abuses, but unwilling to address a system that creates and um, just exasperates a problem. Um, and so it's not uncommon it just it just makes you sad because it's it's this it's the same story but just from a different avenue mm. a different a different group i think culturally as well just societally there's a there's a issue in that just the the victim blaming and you know telling girls how to dress at schools for instance um mm -hmm. you know that when you said about being told you know taken aside and told to behave in a certain way to avoid it you know, it's happening in in other institutions as well, isn't it? Where yeah, told not to wear spaghetti straps at school because that will distract the boys, and it's not told that the boys should learn how to not be distracted by strappy tops. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it just kind of rushes all of those things to my brain and just annoys me. But yeah, <laughs> you know, one of the things that. I don't know that high control groups know how to get around, right? So, of course, people are very unhappy if you call the army a cult. So we won't even go there. We will call mm -hmm. it a high control group. 
But mm-hmm. by definition, in a high control group, you are not supposed to be an individual, right? You are mm-hmm. not supposed to stand out. In the Army, they have this saying that you can have a perfectly successful military career if you're in the right place at the right time, in the right uniform, in the right state of mind, and don't ever volunteer, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what they say. And so, you know, just to start off as, as a woman, you are breaking that because you stand mm-hmm. out. And then, you know, I think as you pointed out, right, these systems, like they almost always kind of oppress the weaker, you know, women as we've been held weaker, children very often. And it's just, you know, when things pop to the surface, and this happens in uncultured in the cult side, when this uncle is raping the young girls and is caught, and so they have to kick him out, right? They are forced to, but there is no tolerance of examining the system, right? It's always, oh, they were a bad apple, but nobody wants to look at how why the tree is rotten, where the toxins are coming from, mm-hmm. right? And it's that exact same thing in the military, right? Every time we ask someone, you know, oh, are you sure you want to ruin his career? Like, yes, I want to ruin the rapist's career. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's it becomes, and I think one of the reasons the U.S. Army struggles so much with rape culture, the military in general, is because... When you get raped, you are an individual. You are an individual. Now you need care. That puts you above the group, right? Now you need justice. That puts you above the group. So one of the strongest parallels I found was that when we get assaulted or harassed or discriminated against, we do not talk about it. And that's actually been one of the most heartbreaking things about writing this book is, of course, I expected my my cult babies to come out and tell me the stories of how they experienced much of the same things. But women in the military who I knew who were my friends, you know, we were literally suffering the exact same things right next to each other and did not know that we could reach out to each other for this lifeline. And so, you know, maybe this this helps us come full circle, but one of the things I believe, like I think this book is an act of patriotism. I think this book I wrote because I loved the army and I love the women that serve in the army and talking about it is how we change the culture, right? Like the men in charge are not doing it. So unfortunately it's up to us to stop playing by their rules and start talking about it so that we can fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was just going to say again as well, one thing that you said about, do we want to quote unquote ruin this one, this, this man's career or whatever it's um, the, the, like you said, you get pulled out as an exception then and it's an individual situation. It's not because it's happening all the time to too many people. Um, but Again, there's other cases um, with the J-Dubs. Um, they'll say, don't take a brother to court, you know, because um, there's the other there's the other issue, I guess, and I think it's probably at play here as well, of not wanting to make your particular group look bad. And don't, you know, don't come in here and let people know because we don't want people to know this is a problem sort of thing. And I, I guess that's probably happening in in the cases you're talking about as well, not wanting it to be seen by others. 
you know, and something else I just discovered recently, but it fits so well, is that there is this theory of fascism. And one of the 14 necessary requirements for fascism is hero worship. And Mm -hmm. I think when you look at, you know, I grew up in South America. So my South American friends are baffled by the way the U.S. military is worshipped, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I really do think that is, of course, I also think America is marching towards fascism, but part of the problem, you know, we talk, we talk about the statistics all the time. We, we have a cultural tolerance to say one in three women in the military is getting raped. We do not have any cultural tolerance of saying these honorable men that join our military are raping the daughters of America that join our military, right? We don't have the tolerance to say that Mm -hmm. because then we're critiquing our heroes. And that is something that we do not do in America is critique at least male veterans. We critique women veterans a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, you know, it, it does, it ties in so closely because if we see you as a hero, how can you be a bad guy? And I think that is so tied in to how it is in the cult, right? We did not have rape in the cult. Like you could not be a bad guy if you were in God's army. Mm-hmm. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in, or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. I wanted to ask you, Daniela, about some, I suppose... um, well, some organizational psychology things um, that relate very much to this. Um, we've got sort of about 10 minutes or so, if that's okay. Um, so uh, things that I'm particularly interested is um, in is things like leadership and, um, and power and how those things are wielded within organizations. Obviously, a lot of... Um, a lot of descriptions of cults are that there's a charismatic leader um, so leadership is often one of those areas that comes under a lot of um, a lot of interest when you're trying to describe cults. And I've talked about transformational leadership and, and the risks involved in some of that as well. You know, sometimes with best of intentions, you can start creating quite cultic environments. Um, so I'm interested. You talk about leadership quite a bit in your book, actually, which I find really interesting. Your observations about that. Um, what can you tell us from your perspective about what good leadership actually is um, and how that is different from the sort of leadership you get in cultic situations? Yeah, so the first point you made about the charismatic leader, I think, is fascinating because people tend to think of either one or the other, right? They'll think charismatic leader is great or they'll think a charismatic leader is always evil and it's just it's just two sides of the same coin, right? You have charismatic leaders, and if they are a good person with good values who chooses to do good, then you usually have the settings for transformational leadership. 
especially if you have all the other components of a, of a high control, high demand group. But if you have a now malignant narcissist charismatic leader, and they can be just as, if not more charismatic than, you know, the transformational leaders, I think you will have this cultic experience. And so in Uncultured, you know, I am glad you picked up on all the leadership stuff because I did, you know, try to thread that in. And I think in the in the military part of the book, you're given kind of two two charismatic leaders. One who is very quiet, does not consider himself a charismatic leader, is not in any form gregarious, um, but like, you know, truly cares about his people, right? And I think that is, as we probably know, one of the discriminators. And then you have the other guy who was gregarious and outgoing and climbed the ladder. And I have never met a single person who liked him or who felt good under his leadership. But he absolutely 100% was that guy that when he talked directly to you, right, you feel that glow and you feel that attention, that charisma. Um, So there's that. One of the things I love in the research about transformational leadership, which, you know, working definition for listeners is that the definition of transformational leadership is that both leader and follower are made better through this leadership um, interaction. And one of the interesting things in the research is one, women score slightly higher in transformational leadership than men. (laughs) Um, But two, it's that it, the ability to be in an organization and stick with an organization for long enough to learn and to be in a position to create change but to also hold yourself separate from that organization. And it's, you know, when I'm talking to Americans, I can always describe this with the army, right? We all know men who are in the army and then men who think they are the army and we call them vet bros and everything they do, you know, it's, it's obsessed with the army. And I think, you know, in many ways, this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, where it's like, if you are giving all of your time to an organization, to an idea. It's not to say that organization is going to become toxic, but if it does, you're too isolated to notice. And I think that, you know, and and also not for nothing, if you're able to be fully a part of one organization, but still keep yourself separate and still engage with other people, it's that, it's that lack of ego, right? That charismatic narcissistic leaders have that ego that they think they're the consummate expert they're the best they're the ones that know and i think transformational leaders know exactly where the edge of their expertise is tend to point it out tend to bring in other people to give them advice and like just that process of keeping yourself separate from the organization, keeping your mind open is going to mean you are running into other leaders and learning leadership lessons. So that's my entire soapbox. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, um, yeah, it's a fascinating subject. Um, I might as well do a plug while I'm at it. Um, I've been doing a, uh, we've been doing some bonus episodes of this podcast with um, another podcast called the world of work project. And we've just been concentrating for four episodes. By the time 
our this podcast comes out i think all four will be out um and we're exploring cultic practices at work so we're really trying to do that um that overlap that you've talked so eloquently about um so i talk about that with the, with the other podcast um podcasters about it and i think it's very very interesting um one of the things about charismatic leadership from a lot of the research i've read is that and this this applies to transformational too is what what they do what these leaders do is they help to identify the organization's goals and help to help you to align your goals and purpose and meaning with that with that organizational goal um and i think the difference perhaps between a a genuinely transformational leader and what's sometimes called a pseudo transformational leader is that um, it's still in your interest you know it's actually in your interest to do that whereas in cults and in really toxic environments um you feel like you're on the same page but actually when you look at uh, what what you're getting out of it as you quite rightly said cults are all about the labor and the service you can give to them and so it's a way of tricking you into believing you do have this same goal this same purpose and meaning but actually um it's a con so i think there's a lot to to identify with a con trick as well um cults operate a con as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. um, and they do that through this pseudo transformational leadership yes and that you know, you, you reminded me of what I was going to say, which is exactly cool. that, right? And I say a lot when I'm explaining to people who haven't been in cults or don't think they've been in cults, and they're like, why do people join cults? And I say, well, cults do some things right, right? Which yeah. is which is give people the sense of purpose and mission and give people yeah. community. But it's actually not that they do it right, right? It's exactly what you said. It's that they hack connection. It's that everything is a con, right? But they make you feel that way. And so that can be, again, like if you turn that around and and look at that from your individual perspective, right? And in Uncultured, you know, you have these two leaders and one of them, you know, Colonel Maxwell, the, the higher ranking leader, like, yes, he he gave this glow. Yes. It like made you think maybe you felt better at the time, but it was all about him. And it was the Mm. pride of being in his circle. You were one of the chosen ones. You were therefore great by proximity to him. And I make this analogy that we called him King Henry the eighth. Right. And so the Tudors (laughs) had their favorites. Um, And the other leader, right, like he was very much about, you know, first of all, meet with you right away, be like, these, this is my leadership strategy, like this is what I believe. He was constantly calling us in, like at, at times of evaluation. So he would be like, here's what I wrote. Now, what other language would you like me to put in here? Like what will be helpful for your career? And mm-hmm. He was, of course, he cared about the mission and of course he cared about the organization, but he balanced that very well with caring about individuals. And that, you know, maybe ironically made all of us so much more connected to, you know, and I don't think any of us ever once talked about being proud of being on Colonel Halter's team, but we were very proud of being 
in that unit, right? Mm-hmm. And so it it is interesting how I think one of the ways you can kind of tell the con is, do you feel proud of being attached to this leader or do you feel mm-hmm. proud of being attached to this team? I, I love that. That's really, really good. Um, that's, that's a really good way of spotting the difference i think yeah um mm. i don't want to hog the conversation celine is there anything else that you wanted to say before we uh um i don't know if it's anything that i necessarily want to say i was just i, I think you probably just saw me like going deep down like thoughts um, i was just <laughs> i was just thinking about work um <laughs> but previous places of work um, yeah. Mm. Not just sort of mm. off on a little bit of a mental journey thinking about that. Well, and you um, know, I was I was telling you both just before we started recording that I want mm. to develop this survey of how culty mm. is your organization. Right? This is a great idea. I think this is the, the bridge, right? Is that mm-hmm. those of us who've been in cults always want the outsiders to understand, like, mm-hmm. we are not as different as you think we are. Mm-hmm. It is not. It is it is easy for people to think that like, oh no, they were just dumb. They're just weird. Like I would never do that. But in actuality, cults work. They work very well. There's a reason that people all throughout history have been attracted to them. And there is cultiness, which I then for organization call, you know, areas of potential toxic control that can pop up in your organization. Like there's cultiness everywhere. Um, And on the flip side in the survey of cultiness, you know, while you don't want to be very high, you also probably don't want to be zero, right? Because then that should just tell you like nobody feels connected and you haven't built a team at all, right? So I I do think the, the most helpful thing for people, whether you think you've been in a cult or not, is to, instead of looking at it as, you know, as people used to say to me when I said I was going to first start talking, oh, the cult is obviously evil, but the U.S. Army is a wonderful organization. We, we don't have to look at things as binaries, right? That's look right. at organizations on a continuum. Yeah. And all organizations are so much have so much more in common with each other than they have different. So mm-hmm. you might think your organization is the coolest place in the world, but you're only like a few degrees difference from you know, a sex cult that traffics children. And I think it behooves every organizational leader to, they all study the good organizations. So study the extremely bad organizations on the other side too. Listen to those of us that that grew up in these and can just feel, right? Like I think you and I, Stephen, both can probably just feel when we're in the room with a toxic leader. Like Absolutely. That, it's, there's a reason I didn't watch television from 2016 to 2020 because I just couldn't watch a cult leader. Yeah, um, I, I I know what you're getting at. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it, it's quite interesting the way that society you've mentioned it already has um, has fractured um, and. That there seems to be a tendency towards popularism, and of course popularism is very ripe territory for cultic um, behaviors because you again you have this strong in inverted commas um, leader who um, you know can do no wrong um, and it's us heroic. versus them 
Us versus versus them them with a side of fear of the outsider, which is exactly what you need to create a cult. It's classic, classic cult territory, isn't it? So yeah, the the more people like, uh, like you shout about it and uh, we do our little bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, The the better, I think, I think it's a really important message that, that needs to go out. You know, and I was just telling someone the other day, one of the reasons I love these cult podcasts is because, you know, no matter how well written my story is, and I think we did an incredible job, that's just my story. And it's not until you start to hear, I would say about like five to 10 in a row of toxic groups that seem to be completely different from each other, right? So I had this realization when I I'd studied all these different cults and then I studied Scientology, which is not at all Christian. And I was like, oh, it's still <laughs> the same, right? And then yeah. as yeah. soon as you see how like Jehovah's Witnesses are the same as Children of God, are the same as Nexium, you're going to see where, where that is also the same as the MLMs and the WeWorks yeah. and the, you know, the toxic companies that you might be a part of. Absolutely. Yeah, I was literally going to say that from the opposite, like, frame point though just saying like it really like you said it helps people that aren't or haven't been involved in cults in that they've all most people have gone to work and a lot of people have dealt with workplaces that have toxic Mm. elements because unfortunately the workplaces are (laughs) a little bit brewing with it um so yeah people can do that um realization from the other point which is oh my workplace is very similar to yeah these cult groups and understand Mm -hmm. yeah how how that kind of happens and how you know they've they've even engaged with a small part of it themselves and i guess be a bit more aware yeah you know and unfortunately one of the the best pieces of advice i can give and i say unfortunately because this makes me very uncomfortable is if you want to stay away from extremism you have to get comfortable living in the gray like you it is mm-hmm. we love as humans we love clarity we love being sure that we're right we love righteous anger we love the schadenfreude feeling like other people are wrong or on the wrong side of history but really like you have to learn to live in the gray and yeah. you know you have to just know that like life is confusing there's nobody that has the answer to everything and anyone that claims they do or any guru that claims to know everything is conning you because life is confusing and the best thing you can do to stay away from toxic control is not give anyone that control over your life, right? Which means you're going to navigate it by yourself, living in the gray, sometimes being wrong, sometimes being hurt, but you're going to live a fuller life without toxic control. I think that's a great, great place mm-hmm. to uh, to leave it. That's that's brilliant advice. Um, Daniela, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been absolutely brilliant. The time has flown by. Um, so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, mm-hmm. We'll have to keep in touch. I want to. I want to know more about your research as you carry on doing it. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you, Daniela, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Cult Hackers is an Evil Sheep production. 